This is our, our final sermon, and the title of our sermon in this series this morning is Our Part in the Grand Plan. Our Part in the Grand Plan. As I had said, the very first week when we started into all of this, and I've, I've repeated it throughout this series, is that there's a time and there's a season for, for everything that takes place in life. From the very start, from the moment we're born, until the very end at our own deaths, every up and down, every joy and sorrow, every victory, every struggle we have, all of it is in the hand of our God. He's the one who's sovereign. He's the one who's in control. He's the one working out all things with a perfect purpose in ways that, that sometimes, as we all recognize, we can't see it. We can't understand it. We can't feel it. We can't really grasp what is taking place and how he's working out all those things. It's why we all resonate with Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 8, where we started this series, right? Solomon, in this divine wisdom he's been given from God, just poetically encapsulates the, the reality of what life is with ups and downs and sorrows and joys and, and all these different things that, that life is for us, even though that's not how we would choose to shape our lives if, if we were totally in control. And I want us to go back to Ecclesiastes 3 this morning. So if you have your Bible, you can go there back to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We looked at 1 to 8 in the first sermon in this series, and now we're going to pick up from verse 9 and look at what Solomon says following those rather famous verses. Solomon looks at, at, at the work of life. He looks at the busyness of life. He looks at all the toil that life has in it, and he says this in verses three, uh, chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. So what gain has the worker for his toil? For I have seen the business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. So he's, he's recognizing, okay, I've observed life. I've seen how this goes. I've, I've written about the ups and downs. I've, I'm thinking about all the work. I'm thinking about everything that life entails. And then he, he says this, more than just God is in control, more than just these seasons are realities we will experience. He says in verse 11, he recognizes that God makes everything beautiful in its time. Now, it's a really interesting and really, I think, a profound statement of faith on the part of Solomon, who's observing the reality of life. He's not, he's not sitting back and going, you know, my life's been pretty good. I've, I've been really blessed. I've got some good things going. He says, I have seen life, the reality of life, with all the ups, all the downs, all the sorrows, all the hardships. And yet, he says this statement of faith, that God makes everything beautiful in its time. And I want you and I, I want us as a people to... To get that, I want us to, to lean into that and kind of press that into our souls. I, I want us to know that God's sovereign control over all things is a beautiful truth. See, it's not the natural response that many of us want to have when we think about the reality of this world. Like the, the human heart is not naturally drawn to seeing that truth as a beautiful thing. Because so many people, even many who, who claim to be Christians, struggle to get past the natural tendencies of pride and of self-absorption and the ever-present here in the West emphasis that we have on individualism. The response of so many people in our natural hearts is that we resent the fact that it's God who has sovereign control over all things in time and space and all that takes place because we ourselves want that. We want to claim that. Countless people try outright to just deny that this is what the Bible teaches. They want to elevate humanity to say, no, we are the masters of, of our own lives. We get to guide our lives. We get to set our courses. We get to create the outcomes that we want. You can see this in everything from, from the words of, of Mark Victor Hansen. He's the author of Chicken Soup for the Soul. He says this in his book, you control your future, your destiny. What you think about comes about. 
Or the more poetic lines, perhaps, of William Ernest Henley, who says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Or the incredible, mem- incredibly memorable lines, which are much better if they're sung, but I'll just read them to you for your own sake. I did what I had to do. I saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, every careful step along the byway, and more, oh, much, much more. I did it. I did it my way, right? Sinatra does much better than I am. I, I know, I know. I know. I like some Sinatra. But those ideas, all of them, no matter how they're expressed in all those ways, they're completely opposed to the truths of the Bible. See, people want to buy into that. We want that to be true, that we are the captain of our own soul. We are the masters of our faith. We can do it our way. But we buy into that because we're rejecting the wisdom that Solomon received, what he learned. That despite our desire to be in control, we are really not in control of our own lives. And Solomon himself says that, having tried to be in control, having tried to be the master of everything. And he had a much better shot at succeeding at that than you and I ever will, right? Solomon was rich beyond comparison. Solomon was a king with massive power and massive influence. He was a guy himself who's smarter than every single one of us in this room. He was a better athlete, a better leader, just better at everything that you and I may try to lean into to exert this control and this say, no, I am in charge. And Solomon tried it all. And he learned the lesson, the lesson he shares here for us, that no matter how much we wish you and I were in control, that we could select the times and seasons, we could order the things in our lives, we just don't get to. We experience life. We go through life being led through it, not by our own decisions alone, not by our own creation of what we want, but by the God who controls them. And as he says here in verse 11, amazingly, not only does God control all things, but he even, Solomon says with faith, makes everything beautiful in its time. Like What an incredible way to look at life. What an incredible perspective to be given that Solomon had, knowing the reality, knowing the experiences, he could still believe this to be true. It's an incredible claim to make. And if you and I embrace that, and if you and I believe this to be true, then it will have a powerful impact on our lives and how we live. Because naturally, we're prone to to miss this. Naturally, we're prone to reject this. But if we believe this, if we can live in faith with this, it will change everything. See, and the reason I think you and I can get there is not because we're Solomon. Again, he's much better, he's much wiser than you and I would be. The reason I think we can apprehend what Solomon apprehended in this divine wisdom he had is because you and I get to see something that Solomon never himself got to see. We get to see the greatest expression of just how true it is that our God is perfect in sovereignty, that our God controls all things and works out all things for good, how he can bring good from bad, how he can bring beauty from tragedy. You and I see it in the greatest expression ever in Christ himself, right? Romans 5, 6 tells us that at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 tell us, but when the fullness of time had come, Right, The perfection of time had come. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In the sermon in Acts 2, when Peter is preaching in in verses 22 and 24, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus was delivered up 
according to the definitive plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosening the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What was Peter saying here? He's saying this was the plan. This was, the, this was what God was working out. From the beginning of time, he knew this is the plan of redemption. This is what he was going to accomplish, and he saw it through. He made it happen. It was his perfect timing. Ephesians 1 tells us this was the plan from before the foundations of the world. God was going to work out and orchestrate everything according to his sovereign control so that this moment would occur just as it did. Everything about it was intentional. The rise of the Roman influence in the world. The specific Jewish leaders who were in power at that time. The very specific disciples that he chose, Peter, James, and John, they were created and put on earth at that exact moment for this purpose. The people who Jesus encountered throughout his entire ministry, every single one of them was purposeful. Think about, think about John 9. Think about in John 9, the disciples are walking along. They see a man who is, who is born blind, right? And they say, now, now is he this way because, because he did something wrong, his own sin, or is it punishment for the sins of his parents? You know, what, what's the explanation here? And Jesus says, you don't understand at all what's happened. It's not his sin. It's not his parents' sin. It's the fact that God created him for this very moment that my power might be displayed through him. And he heals the guy as a testimony of the fact that God is in control of all things across all time, every little detail. It's in the hand of God of God. God's sovereign control is a beautiful, beautiful truth that you and I should embrace, not kick against, not question, not, not, not try to get around and try to create caveats. We should wholeheartedly embrace this incredible, beautiful truth. And if we do, it will dramatically impact how we live and how we look at our God. Because if that's who God is, the one who's in sovereign control of all things, then you realize just how much greater, just how much more majestic, just how glorious he is compared to us, which is where Solomon takes us in verse 11 there in Ecclesiastes 3. He says, For he, that is God, has put eternity into man's heart, yet such that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. What he's saying here is you and I, all of us, we are born innately with this longing for eternity in our hearts, but we're unable to grasp it. You and I, we are born with this longing for something more, for something bigger, for something greater than you and I possess. We are mortal beings, finite and limited, born with a longing, born with a desire for eternity that we cannot grasp onto. We all want to know more than we do, right? We want to understand the things of the past and the future that we can't get to. We want to be part of something bigger and something more than just these moments. If you think about how this plays out in our society, think about all the people who are, who are by world's standards, brilliant and wise. And what do so many of them spend their lives and spend massive amounts of energy thinking about? They're speculating about how did we get here, Right? All these arguments about the origin of humanity and the cosmological creation or, or development or whatever theories they want to put out there, they spend all this time thinking about the things of eternity past, trying to create ideas of how, how did we get to this moment. And so many philosophers spend the, their lives focused on the other end of it too, thinking about eternity future. How's the world going to end, right? All the doomsday stuff we hear all the time in the media. This is how the world will, will end, right? Or this is what comes next, Naturalists talk about the eternal nothingness, as if there's some comfort in that. Eastern religions talk about reincarnation cycles that will come. 
The hedonist imagines a realm of self-gratifying pleasures after this life. And even Christians can get caught up in this, right? How many books do we have that are created and written up as fantasies and, and speculation stories about what is to come in the life after this and what it's going to be like? And yet Solomon, the wisest man who ever lives, says all of that stems from the fact that you and I are created by God with eternity placed in our hearts, yet restrained from being able to know what God has done from beginning to the end. We don't have this capacity. We simply cannot know these things apart from the revelation of the one who himself is the beginning and the end, the one who is there at the start of the cosmos, the one who will be there in eternity future. If he tells us what it is like, then we can know. But you and I, on our own, in our limited nature, cannot grasp those things. That's what Solomon's saying. No matter how smart the PhD holder is creating the theory, to know what took place in the past like that, to know what will happen in the future to come, only can be grasped by revelation. So any theory, anything that we come up with, no matter how smart the person is, that doesn't accept and hold to the revelation of the one who's there at the beginning and there at the end, will be wrong. It will be wrong. You and I have an innate longing for eternity, but we cannot grasp it as mortal beings unless the one who is there reveals it. So, you and I are limited. We are finite. We are these vapors that exist for these short moments. We long to be more than we are. And how does knowing that, how does recognizing who we are and contrasting us with the sovereign one who is supreme over all things, who's not limited by our constraints of power or knowledge, what does that mean for us? What's our response to be? Is it just a, de a depressing description of our limits? <laughs> I don't think so. I think what, what Solomon is revealing to us in a text like this is not something that's designed to leave us in negative frustration. Look how little we are. Look how, how little we know, how little we actually control. I think what he's aiming to do for us is reveal to us the, the motivation, the, the solution that can cause us to live in joy and celebration as we look to the one who the Bible tells us is the beginning and the end, the Alpha, the Omega, the Lord, the God, the King over all things. It's designed, as we even prayed this morning, to help us look up and look beyond this life and the things of this life. Solomon sees that God's sovereignty is a good thing. It's a beautiful thing, a beautiful truth to be embraced. That's why he says, this God makes everything beautiful in its time, and then continues with this in verses 12 and 13. For I have perceived then that there is nothing better for them, for humanity, than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, and that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil, for this is God's gift to man. You see where he goes here? Solomon, recognizing our our, our frailty, recognizing how small we are and how big God is, this massive contrast that exists between us, doesn't say, so, just, just shut up and, and, and suffer through this life. Just, just put your head down and recognize you are nothing. He says, no, by recognizing this reality that exists, you and I can actually have joy. We can actually have fulfillment. We can actually enjoy the, the, the pleasures that God has designed. We can actually find fulfillment and meaning and purpose. Right? God's sovereignty and his control and that we are subject to him doesn't lead to drudgery or to depression or to frivolity or licentiousness. It leads to a very real and proper response that God intends for us to have joy, 
to do good and to take pleasure in everything that he gives to us from the food and drink that we have to the very work that we do with the majority of the time of our lives. God is not out to make us miserable in this life. That's not his design for humanity, and that's particularly not his design for his children. And some of us, we, we bought, we've bought into that. We've, we've thought that all the rules and all the things that God has done are, are really designed to, to hold us back. That's what the world would tell us about our God. But hear me clearly, the, the laws of God, the things he's commanded for us to do and not to do, they're not given to us because God's a cosmic killjoy. Being invited and called to make God's work the priority in our lives rather than just wasting our lives on our own pursuits is not a burden given to keep us down. These things are given to us because God has created us for true joy and for pleasures that are far better than all the second-rate substitutions that sin can give to us. God's inviting us into the grand plan that he is unfolding is because it's far better than any of the narcissistic stories you and I would create on our own. We are created and we are saved, even the Bible would tell us, to do good in order that we would have true joy and pleasure in this life. That's God's design for us. That's his intention for us. And Solomon says, when we find this, when we recognize this, who we are, who God is, and seek to then live in obedience to him and do good and experience the blessings of that, there's nothing else that's better than that in this life. That's what he says. There is nothing better for us than this. So I've been trying to to say throughout this whole series, it's right and good as part of God's design for our lives, for you and me, to learn how to glorify God by celebrating, by finding joy and embracing what God gives us, and how he leads us into different times and seasons. Whether that's through seasons that are mixed with pain and sorrow and hardship, or whether that's into seasons where where things are good and we're able to experience the blessings and the joy of celebration, you and I, no matter where we are, no matter what's happening, can glorify God as we trust him and rely upon him and know that our Savior Jesus endured more for our sake than we ever will. And has given us grace far beyond anything we could possibly ever imagine. And knowing and trusting that he is the one who is working out to make all things beautiful in the fulfillment of his grand plan. Solomon says in in this text, Ecclesiastes 3.14, his second observation is this then. For I have perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken away from it. God has done it so that people will fear before him. This is what we want the celebrations of this 100-year anniversary to be focused on, ultimately. Not, not about the things that we have done, right? Not the way we've built buildings, not the way we've painted the walls or arranged the furniture or set schedules or even structured our ministries or spent the monies or ordered our operations. None of that's really the focus of this year of celebration for us. We want to celebrate and focus upon the things that God has done because what God has done, this text tells us, will endure forever. And what God has done is designed to produce joy and worship in people as we recognize it. That's what Solomon means here at the end of this sentence when he says, God has done it so that people will fear before him. The Bible presents to you and I fear as the proper response of God because it's one of acknowledgement of who he is. It's awe before him. It's not, he's so much powerful, he may strike me dead. It's look at how grand this being is, and I know how small and insignificant I am. I will then worship him. That's what fear of the Lord is, according to the text of Scripture. 
And the Bible tells us when we get that, that's the beginning of, of not only wisdom, but of joy and fulfillment and worship and understanding our role and finding purpose in this life. It's knowing who he is and who we are and being in awe of him. Because the work of God, the work of God is everlasting and unstoppable and completely good and perfect in every way. So that's what we want to celebrate, not just generally, but in this year, as we think about the hundred years of this church being here, we want to celebrate specifically that he has been at work through us here as part of his grand plan. We want to celebrate that God has graciously called us to be part of his work in this world. That's, that's what I want us to, to focus on. For the rest of this entire year, as we reflect on the last 100 years, we want to celebrate God has been at work here. That's worth celebrating. It's worth celebrating that God led Glenn Rennick to to come here to this area from, from California and preach the gospel message out in the middle of nowhere in northeast Missouri. And that through the proclamation of the word that, that he did, God saved dozens of people. And then those people responded in faith and obedience to the word of the Lord. And they went down underneath the Gilead Bridge in 1922 and got baptized. And that from that group, a lot of them led by the Lord said, okay, now what we want to do is, is not just celebrate that, hey, God's been good to us, but we want to establish a church in Nelsonville that can be used to train disciples of Jesus and even reach out to the world. And so that happened and God, by his hand, established this church here in 1923. And we want to celebrate the fact that God's been at work here and sustained this church here throughout all the years. He hasn't just caused us to continue to exist. He's actually caused us to thrive and to be used by him to expand and extend his kingdom as part of his grand plan to reach the world. I mean, that's incredible, an incredible thing for us to think about and worth celebrating. It's worth recognizing that God led this church through challenges throughout our hundred year history. Through some difficult moments in the 1930s, there were growing pains that were really felt by this church as the need to organize more intentionally were felt in that decade after our founding. God led this church through situations in the 1950s when there was a real struggle to find and submit to a pastor to lead this church. God led this church through a lot of challenges in the 1980s. When the finances were so tight that the bills were not getting paid on time, and sometimes the, the decision was made on a monthly basis, what do we pay and what do we hold on to and hope they won't turn off? God led this church through a struggle in the early 1990s with a difficult pastoral transition. Then God did that again in the early 2000s. And then God led this church through a season where all of the words, if we would just went back up to verses 1 to 8 of Ecclesiastes 3, all of the words that would describe what happened in 2021 are the words we don't want to choose, But God led us through a season described by all those words. And yet in all of it, through all of it, God has sustained this church and actually refined this church and grown this church and continued to use this church to be part of his grand plan. He's been faithful and at work every year, every day of the last 100 years. At so many points in our history, if you were to look back and to study the history of this church, God had ample opportunity to just let this place go. This location could have gone the way so many other properties around here have gone. And today, the building could just be sitting here derelict and falling apart instead of being used as a place of worship and spiritual life as it is this morning. Or even worse, in in the even worse judgment, God could have withdrawn his blessing from this place at multiple points throughout the years. And today, while the lights could still be on, this could be nothing more than just a social club people come to to feel good about themselves. 
But God has not done that. God, in his grace, has continued to work in us, through us, making us part of this grand mission that he is on, making this a place of real spiritual light and vitality in these communities that we live in. God's plan and his works, they've never been thwarted, never by humanity, never by external events that take place. And I'm so, for one, I'm so glad that's the case. God's plan to use this church it's never been any danger through any of the trials, through any of the struggles, through any of the challenges that have taken place over the last 100 years. And so as we look back, we don't have to pretend, hey, all the seasons of the history of this place, they were, they were awesome and they were great. We can be real. There were things, seasons and times that would not have been the ones we went through if we were arranging things. But as we look back, and even as we recognize that, we can also understand that God's work is always good, and he has always been making beautiful things in their time from even the difficult things that we have endured. So we get to rejoice this year. That's what we need to do, because hundreds of people have made professions of faith in this place because God's been at work here in the last 100 years. Lives have been changed, not because of how awesome the attenders are here, but because the power of God has been at work in Nelsonville. Ministers and missionaries have been called and then sent out from this very congregation, from those who we would consider our own. They've gone out to be part of the mission of God to spread the gospel outside of these communities because God has been at work here. We have partnered with over 100 different missionary teams, organizational groups, or special projects, either in one-time giving or more often through repeated monthly support over the last 100 years. A hundred different organizations, groups, missionary teams. That's incredible. We've been able to be part of God's work in places around the United States, as close as the university campuses in Columbia, over to Kansas City and to St. Louis, in Springfield, Missouri, going west out of our state in Colorado, Arizona, and California, going east from our state to North Carolina, New York State, and Florida. We've supported U.S. missions works to the north of us in Chicago and the Dakotas and all the way up to Alaska. Going south, we have been partners on projects in Texas and Louisiana and Georgia over the last 100 years. Looking globally, we have partnered with missionaries in Portugal, Spain, France, Germany, Poland, Ukraine, the Republic of Georgia, Azerbaijan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, China, the Philippines, Indonesia, and Papua New Guinea. We've supported missionary works in Ivory Coast, Senegal, Rwanda, Uganda, Tanzania, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Botswana, and South Africa on that continent. We've been partners with missionaries and missions works in Mexico, Haiti, El Salvador, Costa Rica, Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, Bolivia, Chile, the Caribbean islands, and of course, Guatemala. And that's a huge list of places you and I have been able to impact, be partners with the work of God going on there from right here. And I have absolute confidence that those works have brought fruit to the kingdom in those places and the other places that I didn't even name. That's not even the full exhaustive list. You and I have been part of seeing God at work here that hundreds of people in this local community in this place have come to know Jesus and thousands more around the world have come to know Jesus in places we've been able to partner with. God has been at work in us. He's been in work through us and his work is always good. It's unstoppable. It's beautiful. So oh, how we should rejoice and celebrate this year. 
That's what should be so encouraging to us. That's what should be so motivating to us in our lives, in the good moments and the celebration times like we will have this year, even in the hard moments and the difficult moments as we've walked through in the last several months together. The reality is God has given you and I a part in his grand plan. We should celebrate and we should rejoice and we should take pleasure in doing the work that he has called us to be a part of. See, when we keep the main things in focus like this, when we celebrate what God has done, and when we pursue seeing God do more, when we anticipate the future work that he will accomplish, the work that will stand forever, then you and I will find far more joy, far more pleasure, far more satisfaction, far more reason to worship and celebrate than anything else this world could ever offer to us. So this year, what we want to do is we celebrate these 100 years of this church is we want to look back and celebrate the past what God has done. We want to celebrate that. We want to thank God for that. Maybe even use that to gain some understanding and to learn from what God has done, what he's led us through in the past. And then we want to also get excited and look forward and begin to anticipate the future, believing that God's not done with us yet. He has sustained us. He has grown us. He has led us to this milestone moment that I believe will be a launching pad for the future. That's what we want to do. We want to lean into these things that God has in store for us. So this sermon kind of wraps up our, our, our little five-week series here. And, and we're going to prepare for next Sunday and, and our guest speaker, and Doug Clay, comes and he's going to encourage us and share the word and recognize the fact that, that we're, we're a really, really old church by the grace of God. I... I did a little research project working with the national office and the district office trying to locate all of the, the founding dates, the starting dates of churches in our northern Missouri district. And I'm waiting to hear back from a few that we didn't have data on in either of those two offices. But what it looks like right now is we're probably the fourth, maybe the fifth oldest church in northern Missouri. That's a pretty incredible thing. We're founded in 1923. The movement only started a few years before that. I mean, we, we have been part of this thing for a really long time, and God's been at work through us for a really, really long time. And so we're going to celebrate that. We're going to rejoice in that. We're going to believe that, that his faithfulness over 100 years certainly gives us every confidence to believe in his faithfulness in the years to come as we anticipate the future. So this morning, let's, let's take a few minutes in our response time. We're going to sing together, and I want us to just, to just step into this moment, recognizing God's sovereignty and, and his control over all things is what the Bible clearly teaches, and not just teaches it, but gives it to us as a beautiful truth. And so we should praise him for the work that he has done that stands forever and ever, and we should thank him for the gifts of joy and celebration and satisfaction that he gives us when we recognize his sovereignty and when we come to trust in him. And we should worship him because he is the one who sent his son at the perfect time nearly 2,000 years ago to redeem and save his people. So that you and I, in this moment, placed here by God's sovereign hand, can have the joy of knowing Jesus and what he has done for us and be part of what he is doing still in this world. So let's express our trust and our faith and ask him to motivate our hearts this morning so that you and I, when we walk out of this room in a few minutes from now, we would go with deeper affection for him, deeper motivation to take action, to anticipate the future and be part of what God is doing in this world around us. Would you stand? You're invited to the altars if you want to come and pray, but let's worship and let's respond to who God is and what he's done. And let's anticipate being part of something great in the future as well.